Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, as we begin today, I'm going to give you a riddle that you'll be able to answer when we're done. Who in the Bible was allowed to speak, but couldn't speak, but once he was able to speak, was not allowed to speak? And the answer is the unnamed man in our text today in Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at this here beginning at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through to Sidon down the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now we're studying through the Gospel of Mark. We started back in October, and we've been going verse by verse through the chapters. We're in chapter 7 this morning, as we said. And so far, we've seen Jesus ministering mostly in the, the rural area of, of Galilee, in the northern part of the land of Israel, uh, right up in here. Okay, you've got Galilee, you've got Samaria in between Galilee and Judea down here. Uh, Samaritans were people who uh, were, had ancestors that were part Jewish and part Gentile during the captivity where, where Israel was taken away. These people intermarried, and so these people down here didn't like those people so much. And then you had these people up here, the Galileans, which you see Nazareth there, where Jesus' family was from. And you see, as we've been talking a lot about this place, right on the, right on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And so most of the ministry, in fact, all the ministry we've been looking at so far is taking place up there in Galilee. And the main geographical feature up there is that Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Romans gave it the name Tiberius. And it's, it's a, basically a, a big lake there, they call it a sea. And life in Galilee was centered around the lake or the sea. It was centered around fishing or you made your, you made your living farming or, or doing that kind of stuff or selling, buying, selling there on the shores of the lake. It wasn't as densely populated up in the north in Galilee as it was down in Jerusalem and Judea. And the people in the south kind of looked down upon the people in the north as kind of like, you know, bumpkins or, or yokels, if you, if you will. Well, over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus confront the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees concerning their elevation of the traditions of man above the laws of God. He challenged their ideas about ritual cleanliness and, and right standing before God. He pointed out that the heart or the will of man was the source of uncleanliness, not what came from outside. See, they tried to avoid rubbing elbows with the wrong type of people. In fact, they, they challenged Jesus and looked down upon him because he, he hung out with those kind of people. And this all rocked their understanding. 
And then as if to illustrate a point, what did Jesus do? After, after confronting them there, we looked at that for two weeks, and if you didn't get that, you could go back and pick it up on our podcast uh, through our website or our Facebook page or through your Apple or Google Play app. But after that, Jesus, as if to, to kind of put a punctuation mark on it, Jesus and the guys, they traveled from down here on the shores. They traveled up to this place called Tyre. Now, you'll notice this isn't gold up there, is it? This is part of Syrophoenicia. This is a Gentile area up there. It's about 35 miles northwest. Thanks, Chris. Wow. He amazes me every week. Give, give Chris a hand. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so they traveled to Tyre, about 35 miles. And last week, we, we looked at this city. We saw that it was a very hardcore pagan city. Now, there's three reasons Jesus was going into Gentile country, and he's going to spend quite a bit of time there. The first reason is he's trying to get away from the crowds. There's crowds in Galilee. After he fed the 5,000, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that they wanted to basically take him and almost kidnap him, take him down to Jerusalem and put him on the throne and make him king of Israel. He also wanted to get away from the religious leaders. We've been seeing them pestering him. We saw all the way back in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3 that even way back then they wanted to kill him. And as his popularity increased and he became more of a threat to the religious establishment, they sent people from Jerusalem, they sent some of the bigwigs in, in the Jewish hierarchy to Capernaum to try and trap him and trying to, trying to figure out a way that they could get to him. And so they doubled their efforts because he was becoming more popular. So things were getting hot in Galilee for Jesus. And then the third reason that he wanted, to, um, he wanted to get away is because of the turmoil, all this turmoil between the religious people and the crowds and all that. He was having problems getting the time to be away to teach his disciples. He had to teach and train his disciples. And so this, this teaching and training was important to him because as I said a couple weeks ago, we're approaching, this is about a year before the time that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So we're in the last year of his life here. So that's why he traveled to Tyre, took a very long road trip with his disciples. He wanted to get away from the groupies who loved him. They wanted to go to grave from the, from the religious leaders who hated him. And he wanted to get to a place where he could train his disciples without interference. And so the primary purpose of this trip was not to get to a de destination. Have you ever traveled with someone that all they worried about was getting there and getting there as quickly as possible? You know, they, just, they just want to get there, just, just, just focus on getting there, whereas someone else in the car wanted to, hey, let's just enjoy, let's stop here, let's stop there. Um, we're we're kind of that way sometimes because you know, I don't like passing up a good bookstore if I can find a secondhand bookstore or one of those uh, antique malls. Even though I can't fit anything in the car or, or the truck to take, I still like looking at all the, all the old stuff that I don't need. But the purpose of this trip was not to get to the destination. The purpose of this trip was for Jesus to spend time with Peter and the boys and the rest of his entourage and if we look at the overall sweep of this gospel, we see Jesus transitioning more and more from teaching the crowds to teaching the disciples. Now, you have to remember what was going to happen within the next year. These apostles were going to be the, the first generation of preachers that would begin to spread this good news that would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth down to where it's why you and I are sitting here in Forest Hall in Southern California today because of what Jesus started and these folks carried forth out of Jerusalem. And so the problem here is that Jesus promised them that the Holy Spirit, he would promise them later in John chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit would, would bring to mind the things that Jesus had taught them. But it's going to be hard for the Holy Spirit to bring to mind the things Jesus taught them if he doesn't have the time to get away and teach them. 
And so he wants to get away. He wants to be able to teach them so that they'll have these things in their memory, the, the, the teachings, the lessons, the words that he's saying. So this is why this lengthy road trip was important. It was about time and learning being with Jesus. Now last week, as I said, we saw when we got to Tyre that even though he was trying to go up there to, to, to get away, he was still recognized because there had already been people from Syrophoenicia, from Tyre and Sidon that had already been down in Judea, or not in Judea, in Galilee during previous miracles Jesus had done. And we're told earlier, Mark, that the word had gotten up to those areas. And so he's trying to escape. And one woman in particular recognized Jesus there in Tyre. She found him and she begged Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And we went through the whole story last week. If you didn't get it, again, you can pick up on podcasts. And she was an individual with huge social and religious barriers. You know, she was a woman. She was a Syrophoenician. She basically grew up in a pagan, in a pagan society. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. And so she came to Jesus and wanted this healing for her daughter. And so she asked him to cast out the demon, and she recognized Jesus as the son of David, which is very strange for a Gentile to say that, but somehow she, understand, she understood who Jesus was, and prophetically or however, she said she called him son of David, who was the Jewish Messiah. She exhibited an attitude of humility towards Jesus. She was confident in Jesus' great compassion, even though her background and the timing of her request was not at the right time. For Jesus himself even said, hey, it's not time yet for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. But she persisted, and she persisted. And Jesus, commending her faith, cast the demon out out of her daughter in spite of her background and in spite of it not being the right time yet for God's grace to be extended to the Gentile world. So she placed great faith in Jesus and she received great mercy from Jesus. And this is a principle that's true today the same way it was 2,000 years ago. When we place great faith in Christ, we will receive great mercy from him. It doesn't matter what messed up background we have, where we come from, It also doesn't matter whatever obstacles, whether they they be our our gender or anything else about us, nothing like that can come between us and 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 the mercy of Christ if we place our faith in him. Now this morning we pick up the story, as I said, as Jesus is leaving Tyre, and he first travels north to the city of Sidon, and that's about 20 miles from Tyre up to Sidon, so he goes up The Gospels don't record anything significant that happened there. It just tells us that he went up. And then they turn southward, and that they're going to come back down here to the Sea of Galilee around this area. And that's where we're going to be this week. Later, we're going to see in chapter 8 that then they they come from here. They go up to Bethsaida. We're going to see that. I think it's next week. And then the pivot point in the entire Gospel of Mark is the center of chapter 8 at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asks the question, Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says, well, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for man hasn't hasn't revealed this to you, but God the Father has revealed this to you. So that's where where we're at. You turn southward, go down. They're going to end up in the Decapolis. We've talked about the Decapolis. It's uh, it's named uh, that because Deca means ten, Polis means cities. It's ten cities that are kind of joined together for common defense, much the same way that NATO is supposed to be that way. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us much geographical information on this trip, but this trip must have, it must have taken months to do this journey. It wasn't just a quick up and back. It wasn't a weekender. Last week, we saw a parallel account in Matthew through chapter 15, which provided a few more details. 
It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, he's no doubt resting because this is an arduous journey. This is about 150 miles, and they didn't have Ubers. They didn't have Teslas. They didn't have you know, bicycles back then. And, and this is mostly done on foot with a bunch of folks. And you, you probably know that the more people you travel with, the harder it is to make, to make time. The more people you're trying to take from point A to point B, the longer it's going to take. Whereas if you just had one or two people, you get there a lot quicker. It still happened that great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. So these pagans that were living in the Decapolis, they were worshiping their idols, they had become very much aware of this, this, this man called Jesus, this, this healer and the powers that he had and the, the ability to heal that he had. They heard and seen for themselves from the, the testimony of the Gadarene demoniac, the, as we called him, the man in the tombs back uh, about a month and a half, two months ago as we looked at him in chapter 5. And this would have been very convincing because everybody in, the, in that area, that region, would have heard about this guy that lived in the tombs and, and acted out like he did. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Mark chapter 5 and read it. So he's at the foot of this hill and somewhere on the slope and they just start throwing people at his, at his feet with all these maladies, all these ailments. And so he heals them. And he heals them. And he heals them. And so in verse 31 it says, The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And here's a hint that makes us sure that these people were Gentiles. Or some people say, oh no, these must have been Jews. This tells us they were Gentiles because it says, And they praised the God of what? Of Israel. Now, earlier, when we look at the same thing in Matthew, when Jesus was doing his ministry among the Jews, it says they glorified God. But here, Mark felt it necessary to say these guys were praising the God of Israel. And the reason they're saying it is because they're Gentiles. And so he comes, he begins his healing, the people are astounded at his power, and they actually go so far as to glorify Israel's God. And believe me, they've never seen anything like the things that Jesus is doing. Their deities couldn't do it. And they recognize the God of Israel in a completely different nature, has a completely different nature than their gods. And it's in that context that we come to our passage today in Mark. Our unnamed man is one of those many who were thrown at Jesus' feet by his family or his friends, and he's a deaf mute. And Mark is the only gospel writer who includes this story. It's, this miracle is only included in Mark's gospel. And the account is told in the historical present tense. That's a, that's a linguistic thing we look at. And it has all the feeling of Peter, who was there as an eyewitness, telling it to Mark, who's writing all these things down, all the recollections that Peter had of Jesus' ministry, to give us the gospel of Mark as we know it. So let's break this down. First off, we see this man unable to speak. And as we saw in Matthew, there were many people that came to Jesus to be healed. And this man didn't come by himself, but he was brought by his family or friends. And he's not the first guy to be healed that day. This is just one of the masses. These healings were going on all, all day and probably all afternoon there. He was deaf, and deafness, when it's congenital or when it occurs by about age two or three, always leaves an impediment of the speech because it's hard to form words if you, if you aren't able to hear words. I've known people who didn't, who didn't become deaf until like when they were two, three, four years old, and they could actually speak pretty intelligibly, but if someone was deaf from birth, it's much harder for them to form words if they've never, never heard those words. And so it's normal for the congenitally deaf to struggle to speak when they cannot hear. And in that world, 
There were no remedies, there were no hearing aids, there were no sophisticated techniques for training people like that, or was there any desire for most part to do this? And it was a sad reality, but even in Israel, deaf mutes were categorized by the Jewish rabbis along with the insane, because they said that we have no way of their understanding or what, they, what they're thinking. And so who knows what kind of life this man had lived, what stigma there was for him, a, a, a life of rejection probably, a life of, of sadness. But he had some friends that cared enough to bring him to Jesus, and they begged him, they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man. Now, Jesus was eager. He was eager to touch these kind of people. He was eager to touch people like lepers. He was eager to touch people that the, that the Pharisees, that the, the religious leaders, the scribes, that they thought were unclean, and they didn't want to be, become ritually defiled by touching these. But Jesus was always willing to touch these folks. And the Lord responds to this man's friends and to him, the man, as Jesus, it says, took him aside from the crowd by himself. Now, I want you to picture this scene. There's a lot of people here. You're at the, you're at the, the foot of the hillside. All these people want to be healed. You know, there's probably some, a little bit of chaos going there. Can you picture that? And there's jostling going on. But this is a man who's probably been ignored most of his, most of his life. He didn't have a voice, so to say, literally and, and, and figuratively. It's a man who's probably received scorn and, and disdain. It's a man who's probably not known any kind of personal care from someone like someone touching him or, or showing him compassion in his life. But Jesus took him aside. He treated him as an individual. He showed compassion. He showed kindness to him. He's shown the man that he's not just another face in the crowd. Now, Jesus probably could have just said, be healed, something like that, and the guy all of a sudden realized he could speak. But no, Jesus is treating him as an individual, and that's important for us to understand. We should treat people as individuals that way as well and treat them and see, see the, 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 the image of God in them the same way that Jesus saw the image of God inside this man. He's not looking at his disability. He's not looking at any kind of failings that he may or may not have had. He's treating him as someone that is loved. And so this man's going to have Jesus' full attention, his full concentration. And then Jesus begins to speak to this man in his own version of sign language. He didn't have the sign language that we do today. And he communicates to the man with four signs. First of all, it says in verse 33, he put his fingers in the man's ears, both sides. What was he doing? He was letting the man know, I know what's wrong. I know what the problem is. I know that you're not insane. I know that you're not a maniac. I know that you just can't hear. And he wanted the man to know that he not only knew that, but he was about to heal that. It's a symbolic gesture to show the man what he was getting ready to do. Secondly, after spitting, and I know young boys like this passage of a young girl, ooh, and even grown people probably say, ooh, what's he doing here? Don't know. It isn't explained. But after spitting, he touched the man's tongue, and it's implied that he touched it with his saliva. And he says to the man again, I understand. You're not insane. You're not mentally deficient. You have a speech problem, and I'm going to fix that. But that's not all. In verse 34, it tells us that Jesus looks up to heaven. And so he's, he's communicating to the man there, here's where your healing's coming from. Here's, here's where your blessing's going to come from. It's going to come from a heaven. It's going to come from, from above. Because even in the pagan world, folks know that looking up to the heaven or pointing to heaven you're, you're pointing to God or you're pointing to a deity. You're, you're saying that something hev heavenly, something supernatural is going to happen. And we cannot assume that this man knew already anything about Jesus. You know, nothing is indicated that he did, but Jesus wanted to know, 
Jesus wanted him to know that the power was coming from on high. And then there's a fourth sign. It says, with a deep sigh. Now, people who have a malady of one of their senses, oftentimes their other senses are heightened. And so someone who can't hear is much more observant and sees things and observes things. So, so this man would have seen, and he would be able to tell that Jesus was sighing. And, and the man would notice this. And a deep sigh, it's an expression of empathy, an expression of pain over the man's suffering, an expression of compassion, an expression of tenderness, strong emotion showing that God is going to come down in power and give him his hearing and then give him his speech because God is compassionate. And so with sign language, Jesus gives him his first lesson about God. God is powerful, he can heal you, and God is compassionate, he cares about you. And when Jesus came to demonstrate his deity, he did it through healing because that indicates the compassion of God. And so these inescapable realities are, are in this man's mind now. A, a compassionate power from heaven is going to change his life, change his situation, give him hearing, give him speech. And so then in verse 34, it happens. Jesus says, Epitha, which in Aramaic, ancient Aramaic, basically means be opened. And we're told that the response was in an instant. With one word, the power came, and we see the man able to speak. It tells us at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak how? Plainly. He began to speak plainly. His ears were opened, and then we're told the desmos, uh, the Greek word that's used there, desmos, that, that refers to bonds or, or chains, something that would that would fetters, things that would keep you from exercising, doing what, you, what you're wanting to do. It tells us that the desmos were loosened, they came off, and he was able to speak plainly. So in an instant, he could hear perfectly, and he could speak plainly. Now, don't just read through this quickly and not get the, the extent of this, what, what's happening here. To hear is one thing, but to be able to know what you're hearing in a language that you've never heard in another language is a miracle. Most of you have probably taken a foreign language at some time. I've taken two or three. I'm not good in any of them. I've struggled enough in English. If you walked in the first day to French class and the teacher starts talking to you just in a you know, paragraph of French, you might get one or two words. You might understand bonjour, but you wouldn't understand you know, if, if she told you to close the fenêtre, the window, or something like that. You have to learn to understand a language. But this man was healed, and he understood the language. He didn't have to learn Aramaic or, or Greek. He has full faculty of the language a language that he most likely has never, never heard. He hears it and he understands it plainly. The word plainly here is from the word orthos in the Greek. We get our word orthopedics or we get our word orthodontist. We're basically talking about straightening or making, making true, putting something in the correct alignment, uh, much like a chiropractor does with your spine. Right, Kurt? You know, orthos. He heard and he spoke perfectly. He, could, he couldn't hear. Now he hears. He couldn't speak, but now he speaks. And he hears perfectly. He speaks perfectly. And this should stagger you, trying to understand the, the extent of this miracle. He was unable to speak, and now he is able. But next we see him not allowed to speak. He's not allowed to speak. Before this man was allowed to speak but couldn't, now he could speak, but he's not allowed to. And I'm sure this guy's probably like, you know, what is going on here? You know, I, I've never said anything in my life, and now I have something to say. And I mean, you know, I, I want to tell, I just want to let everybody know about this, but you're telling me I can't do that? And Jesus said, yeah, I don't want you to say anything about it. And I'm sure this is an agonizing command for this guy. 
I don't think you or I could follow this command and, and not talk about it. Our, our friends, as you're going to see, the man's friends were talking about it as well. You know, I can't imagine any kind of human restraint that would enable me to, to, to not tell people about this thing that had happened in my life if I'd been deaf-mute all my life. It says, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Now, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is using some kind of reverse psychology thing here or what. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's what happened. I mean, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a little secret with you, okay? There's certain people in the park that if I want some, a word spread around, I tell them. <laughs> because I know if I say something to them, it's going to go through the park like wildfire. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not going to say who any of them are. Now, this seems like a strange command. You know, we've seen before that Jesus has told them not to speak about things. And in chapter 1, verse 34, he said, don't tell anyone. In chapter 1, verse 44, he said, don't tell anyone. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 43. All those, we're going to see it again in chapter 8. He's going to do a healing. He's going to do a miracle. And he's going to say, don't tell anyone. And it seems strange to us, especially in light of the fact that back in chapter 5, when he healed the man that had all the demons there in, a, in the man of the tombs, he tells that guy, I want you to stay here because that guy wanted to go with Jesus back to Galilee. He wanted to be the 13th apostle. And Jesus said, no, you stay here and you go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So it says the man went throughout the Decapolis, is the man with the tomb, for the tombs, and told everything that Jesus had done for him. And it says all the people were amazed. So it's funny, he tells the man in chapter 5 to go tell everybody. He tells this man today, don't tell anybody. We try to figure out what's the difference here. We try to get the mind of Christ and understand. And we can explain it because the, the demoniac was the first missionary, basically, in this Gentile region of the Decapolis. There'd been no one there to talk about Jesus before. And I'm sure, again, Jesus knew what this man would do. He would go, you know, he was zealous already. He wanted to go back with Jesus, even though he was a Gentile. But Jesus said, no, you need to stay here. And we're going to see some more of this man's fruits next week when we look at the story of the feeding of the 4,000. But he wanted these people to understand who he was and, and what he could do with this power. He wanted that established there. But what's happened is over time, it's reached proportions to where it becomes an impediment to his, to his ministry. These massive crowds in the next chapter, uh, next chapter, chapter 8, as I said, we're going to see the, the feeding of the 4,000. You know, we had, that's plus uh, women and children, so it probably expanded to 12 to 15,000 and so the simple knowledge about Jesus has exploded, and, and people are, are looking for this miracle worker, this, this healer. And Jesus has to slow that down, if not grind it to a halt, because that's not what he is. That's not all he is. That's not just what he is. Because as we've seen before, the message isn't complete. Don't just spread the message that I'm a healer or a miracle worker. That's not the whole story. It would be like if you had one part of the gospel story and you said that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he came into the world, he did some miracles and preached the kingdom of God and told everybody, be nice to everybody, and then went away. And that's how a lot of the world sees Jesus. They see him as a, as a good moral, moral teacher, just like there's been other good moral teachers, not on the scale of Jesus, but that's how many people outside of Christianity see Jesus. But that's not the whole story because it doesn't include the cross it doesn't include the resurrection. It doesn't include his ascension. It doesn't include his return. That's the full story. So we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks as we get into chapter 8, that even the disciples didn't understand all of this. They didn't understand that Jesus came to die. 
It says, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And Jesus will accomplish his intended purpose by letting his disciples know that they're not yet in possession of the full message and letting everybody who reads this know that this is not the full message. It's not just about the healings. It's not just about the stuff. Even though they were disobedient, Jesus still established that point. And it says they're disobedient in verse 37. Why? Because people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now this phrase, overwhelmed with amazement, in Greek it's one word, huperparisos. Try saying that fast. Huperparisos. And it's used only here. It's the only time this is ever used in the New Testament. It's a compound word, which means like very, very strong. It means over the top. It means super abundantly amazed. It means amazingly astonished. In our vernacular, we might say they had their minds blown. That's, that's, that's how we would put it in today's language. They're just completely amazed and they can't contain it, so they want to spread it everywhere. They want to tell the story, but it's not the full story. Now, there's two subtle clues in this passage that underscore, I believe, what Mark was trying to put forth in this story. Mark rarely laced clues from the Old Testament in his gospel because his primary audience, as we've said before, were Romans, uh, citizens of, of the Roman Empire. They, it was Gentiles. And, but in this passage, he wove in these two important clues. And their final comments here that, that were given there in that last verse wrap up their story in an, in an incredible way. In verse 37, they said two things. They said, he's done all things well. Then secondarily, they say, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I want to talk about those for a few minutes here. First off, it says he's done all things well. And here they're commenting on the perfection, the perfection of his miracles. They look at the blind and the blind see. They look at the lame and the lame walk. They look at the deaf and they, they hear the mute talk. And it's perfect. They walk perfectly. They see perfectly. They hear perfectly. They, they speak perfectly. And the people who were sick, they're perfectly healthy. They're commenting on the perfection of his miracles. And how did he do it? He did it with a word. He did it with a word. He said, Epitha, be opened. He says, oftentimes, be healed. And yes, sometimes he'll, he'll do other things to, along with that, as we're going to see next week, the blind man. But he literally spoke. He spoke, and it happened. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear some echoes with that when it talks about God speaking. I hear echoes all the way to the beginning, to the book of beginnings, the first chapter of Genesis. Listen to this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. God saw the light and saw that it was good. In verse 10, God called the dry land to earth and the gathering of the waters he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their own kind, trees bearing fruit with seed after their own kind, and God saw that it was good. All this was after God spoke and these things happened. Verse 18, he made the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon, to govern the night and the day and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21 of Genesis 1, he made the sea monsters, every living creature that moves in the waters, every winged bird, and God saw that it was good or perfect. Verse 25, Genesis 1, he made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the earth and its kind, and God saw that it was good. It was perfect. 
And in verse 31, God looked at all of it and said, it's not just good. He said it's what? Very good. It's very good. That's creation. That is creation. It was perfect. Everything that God made was perfect. Jesus created. He healed. He brought into being new eyes, new ears, new voices, new legs, new arms, new organs, creatively by speaking them into existence as he healed people with his word. Just as in Genesis 1, he created through the word of his mouth. When he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let the waters divide from the land. And it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Everything, everything that was made was made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's the creator. And in these miracles that he's doing during his public ministry there in Galilee and in the Decapolis, we see him creating. Every miracle is an act of creation where he brought into existence through his word the same way that he created the universe to start with. And it was perfect. So Mark is implying that there's a connection between the one who made the universe and the one who miraculously healed the sick. Jesus' healing miracles were creation moments because he is the creator. Now the second thing they said also gives us support from, uh, from the Old Testament. It says, He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the second clue that Mark wants us to notice coming from Jesus. And the particular Greek word that's used here to describe the, the man's mutism is a very rare word. It's, it's the word mogilolin. And it's, it's the only place that word's used is here in the New Testament. And it's interesting that this word is so rare because there's only one place that it's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, and that's in Isaiah chapter 35. And in that chapter, Isaiah described how we could recognize the arrival of the Son of God. 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, Isaiah is telling us, this is how you're going to recognize the arrival of the one who's coming to free God's people from the curse of sin and restore relationship with the Father. It says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leak like the deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah said the son of God, his arrival could be recognized by these miraculous healings that were going to be done to people so they would not just be restored to health, but they would be restored to health perfectly. What was once weakness in their lives would be transformed into strength in their lives because of the touch of Jesus, because of the word of Jesus. And that same principle of what happened then happens now. The same Jesus, the same Jesus wants to heal our broken lives. The same Jesus wants to heal our broken spirits. The same Jesus wants to heal our, our tortured souls. Amen. He does all things well. He does all things very good. What a story. Now, if you look at your watch like some of you do when I'm preaching, I know, you may have noticed another miracle here today. <laughs> and that's that I finished a bit earlier than usual. And that's because I wanted to leave a, a few minutes at the end here in order to share something with you. 
I would ask that you not leave yet. Um, we're going to have our final song and a benediction in a few minutes. How many of you were at our Refresh Conference last month uh, where Kirk Mackey spoke and you probably met Nick? A, a handful of you. Some of you weren't. The, the um, recordings of the, of the conference are available online on my podcast channel. Again, if you don't know how to get to that, just let me know. Well, about two, three weeks ago, I gave a notice to the Sky Valley Ministries Board that next season will be my last season. Um, next April, at the end of next April, Lou and I are going to move on. This has been uh, in process for about two or three years, actually. Novo, the organization that Kirk represents, has been um, right trying to recruit me for three or four years. And something happened, this thing called COVID, two years ago. And I told them, I can't leave Sky Valley in the midst of COVID. I, I, need, I need to stick around. I also personally needed to get a couple surgeries on my knees and my foot. I got one more knee left, but my, most many of you know I've already had two surgeries in the past six months. But Lou and I prayerfully considered this for a couple years. And one of the th there's a number of reasons for this. Um, I've been here 11 years. This is my 11th year. When I came, I told Tim Monti it would take 10 to 15 years to to do initially what I felt needed to be done to, so that our chapel program at Sky Valley would continue to be a viable part of the community. And I know a lot of people didn't want change. And I was a young guy coming in and I tried to turn the ship slowly. And I think I, I did that. And it was hard sometimes, um, but that's what we've done. But it's time for me to move on. God's told me that very clearly. Uh, my ministry is gonna be even greater. Um, I'm, believed in in Sky Valley because I'm basically going to be mentoring uh, pastors, coaching churches. I was supposed to be teaching in Russia and Ukraine with Kirk. Um, he and I spoke this week and I told him it's probably going to be two years before we could get back into either of those two countries. And so I enjoin you to continue praying for both of those two countries and for Putin as well. But um, I couldn't leave in the middle of COVID. And uh, so we stayed and uh, as I said, I'm going to leave the end of, end of April next year. I, the, the goals, though, that I have here is I've done this my entire life when I was in the military and other places, uh, in other churches and all. My goal is to finish well, okay? I want to finish well. I want Sky Valley Ministries to finish well, and I want to finish well. I want Lou and I to finish well here in Sky Valley. And, um, and we want what's best for the, for the ministry and for the resort. And I've shared this. I've shared my heart on all this with the with the. Uh, with the board. I've shared it with my staff. My staff is actually known for a couple weeks. Um, all of them have known. And um, I will say the transition, I think we're on a good glide scope for the transition. Um, Bruce is going to be part of the transition. Bruce will be here with me next year. And Bruce um, is going to be part of the transition, uh, getting you to where we need to be. So uh, I know there's probably a lot of questions and I won't have time. I guarantee you after the, after the service, I won't have time to answer them, but you know, you can hit me up along the way somewhere and, and, um, and I'll try to answer them for you. But um, the bottom line is God's told us it's time, it's time to move on. We're not running from anything. I don't run from things. Uh, I, I don't run from conflict. Uh, I run two th things and uh, the opportunity is there. It's great. So I'm going to ask uh, the chairman of the Sky Valley Ministry Board, Adam Monti, if he would, to please come up. He's got a couple things to say. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, well, when Walt told me a couple weeks ago that uh, he was uh, being called to a new ministry in church leadership and growth, uh, you know, I must be getting old because uh, I was afraid of change. Um, change is hard. 
I'm 42, but uh-oh. Um, I, I took a few days to really think about it and pray about, you know, what my, well, I was having, you know, there's reactions you can't control, and then there's reactions you um, tell yourself, and you try to process it and tell yourself, what, what should be my reaction? And, you know, this guy has been here almost as long as me um, working in this community. So with him saying, hey, it's time, I'm called to a new ministry, a new season, um, this guy's been kind of an anchor for me, standing right alongside of me here, and, and that's probably a many of you too. So it was scary. It was, I was afraid. And I think that um, after, after prayer, though, where I came to is I said, you know, what's, what I feel called to do is support him, bless him, encourage him. Um, if God's calling him to the next ministry, God's not leaving us. You know, it's God's plan. So um, that's where I'm at. And there's a group of, uh, a team of, of people that are going to be helping support Walt this next year. Uh, and along with the transition, um, we're going to continue the ministry. And um, those, uh, that team is going to involve uh, Bruce, myself, uh, Walt will be an advisor on that team. And then uh, two other people that you may or may not know. Uh, ben Monti and Phil Monti. They have been part of the community here for 35 years and really bought, really engaged, I think, in the, in the chapel program here in the last three. So um, they've come alongside Walt in the last couple years um, and, and been a big support to him. So I feel like there's a good team uh, that we're putting together for this transition. And I think there's some things that we're going to do that we'd like to share with you. And Ben, uh, some things you can do too. And Ben, can you come up and share those things? Thank you, Adam. Uh, so I'd like to ask a question. What do you do when you hear difficult or unexpected news? I've learned through some personal experience, I've hit some tough times, as many of you have, what we choose to focus on next will determine whether we lean towards fear or whether we lean towards faith. Whether we lean towards denial, despair, and depression, or whether we lean towards acceptance, opportunity, and even anticipation. So, like Adam, <laughs> When Walt shared with us a few weeks ago, <clears throat> excuse me, he and Lou's uh, sense of God's calling on them, um, my first response was, I didn't sleep at all that night. <laughs> and I began to struggle. And, uh, you, you know, struggle is usually for me just delayed obedience. And so I started praying, and I said, God, what should my response be? And as I was wrestling that night, I can't explain this, but God gave me four words to think on. And as I began to think on those words, I noticed my attitude begin to shift from fear to faith. And I'd like to share those four words with you, what our response could be. The first word, the word show, came into my mind. Show a thankful heart. Do you know, even as light 
and darkness cannot occupy the same room at the same time. Thankfulness and complaining cannot occupy our hearts at the same, at the same time. So what could we be thankful for? As Walt said, we've had 11 amazing years with Walt as our leader here at this chapel. And perhaps Walt gave us one of the best gifts he could possibly give us. He's staying, he's given us a year to transition. Do you know if you study transitions in corporations or even in churches, the best transitions happen over a 12 to an 18 month time frame. And Walt's given us that opportunity. With that opportunity, the second word came to my mind. Help. How can we help Walt and Lou finish strong? Friends, it's time that we fully engage. We have a year to engage to continue what Walt started here at the chapel, with the block parties, with the concerts at the fire pit, reaching our community. And um, the best chance that we have on attracting the next high-capacity leader to lead us is by us, collectively, being a high-capacity chapel. And we do that by engaging, by reaching our neighbors. That's what's going to attract where God is taking us in the future. Um, and that brings us, well, do you know, represented here in this chapel, there's well, I don't even know, but there's well over 100 churches represented as we go home. And as Walt begins working uh, through Novo and coaching churches, uh, we can be part of his team as we finish strong with Walt. Which brings us uh, to the third word that I was contemplating on, intercede or pray. You know, Martin Luther said the best balance is to work as if prayer meant nothing, but then pray as if work meant nothing. And so we need to intercede. We need to pray for wisdom for this search team as we're looking for Walt's replacement. We need to pray for a seamless transition. And what if we were to pray that we as a chapel could be part of Walt and Lou's next ministry? What if we could think of them as a homegrown, our Sky Valley homegrown missionary, <laughs> that we're, <laughs> excuse me, that we're sending out. We will have opportunities to pursue that over this next year. Finally, prepare. What if we ask God to prepare our hearts that we can uh, continue to love Walton Lou next year and beyond? What if we could pray that God would prepare our hearts with a love for the next chaplain that will be coming in? And what if even now uh, God is preparing that next chaplain to love us? Can you believe that? <laughs> That's pretty exciting. Well, if you look at these four words, it's almost, uh, well, what's the word? 
uh, um, an uh, analogy? Acrostic, thank you. It's an acrostic for ship, S-H-I-P. Now, wouldn't it be just like God to give us a ship with Walt's background in the Navy, God gave us a ship to climb on board over the, to take us through this transition. And if we will practice these four things, I believe we have a chance, an exciting chance, uh, to see where God is taking us in the future. And uh, isn't it interesting how God loves us enough that he's not going to let us stay where we are? He has plans to take us further in our growth. So we have an opportunity before us, and I can't explain it, but um, I have an excited anticipation of where we're headed. Thank you. Well, that being said, let's, let's stand and uh, commit to trusting in Jesus through this. And folks, let's remember that Walt is not being replaced. He's being reassigned. God is just reassigning him to where he wants him to be. And there's a guy out there somewhere that's about to be reassigned to here. And we need to pray for all of that. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.